Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Coffee Club podcast. Um, apologies, it's been a little longer than uh, anticipated. I got married, went on honeymoon, lots going on. It's all been uh, all been really fun, but I can promise you it's been worth the wait. We have an excellent show for you this time. We spoke to Damien Hughes. Damien is a researcher, lecturer, consultant, author around all things organisational psychology and change. We talked around building a culture, elite coach behaviours. We touched on his five steps acronym. Um, We spoke about dealing with pressure, dealing with challenge. He shared insights from people such as Sir Alex Ferguson, Rio Ferdinand, Roy Keane, as well as many more from football. Uh, We touched on a lot of insights in boxing and and many more. So it really is um, an exciting, thought-provoking, educational podcast. Um, Very grateful for Damien's time. I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it as much as I did. But before we go on to to the conversation... um, the Coaches Coffee Club is sponsored by PitchRMT.com. Pitch is a validated LinkedIn-style website or service. It's a startup business which helps players get identified. It's also a good psychological buffer, and it may have some impact on the mental health of young players being released from academies. So if you are a player looking to gain further exposure or a coach looking for young emerging talent, get yourself over to www.pitchrmt.com. Okay, so without further ado, here it is, our conversation with Damien Hughes. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Please share, comment, like, subscribe, help grow the podcast, spread the word. It's very much appreciated. And I will see you on the other side. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches Coffee Club. We are very, very privileged today to have... Damien Hughes with us. Good morning, Damien. Morning, Lee. How are you? You okay? Yeah, very well, thank you. I appreciate your time and uh, I'm excited for, for what we're going to dig into. But um, for any of those people that that have not switched on a, a computer or been to a library or, or are not familiar with any of the yeah. plethora of work you've done, <laughs> would you be so kind as to just give us a quick whistle-stop tour on on sort of your, your area of expertise and some of the work and and yeah, of course. You've got. Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be glad to. And but first of all, thanks for the invite. Honor. I think it's a brilliant concept that you're doing with the coffee club. So uh, I'm I'm genuinely honoured to be asked on. In terms of uh, who am I then for um, anyone that's listening? Um, it's probably easier to explain um, what I do because I do a few different roles. Uh, one of my roles is um, so my whole background in organisational psychology and change. Um, so I, 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 I'm a visiting professor at the Manchester Met University uh, and lecture around those uh, those areas. I also work as a consultant across quite a wide range of areas uh, of industries. So I do bits in business, I do a little bit in education, but predominantly most of my work is in elite sport, working with coaches that are, want to use culture as a competitive advantage so I, I work on the coaching staff at the moment with the Scotland rugby team and then work out in the NRL with Canberra Raiders uh, uh, currently. And then I consult for a few other teams in the Premier League, in the rugby and football. And then the third job I do is a write. So uh, I've done a few different books very much around these topics. Uh, probably the most relevant one for today is I did a book uh, called The Winning Mindset, which was a series of interviews with elite coaches looking at how do they develop culture, how do they develop a culture where people can go and perform. Um, so, yeah, those three areas are very much my background. Oh, brilliant. What, what was it that, that sort of sparked your interest in into um, sort of environments, elite sport? Was there, Is there a reason why you, you wanted to pursue that or did you just find yourself in that uh, area? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'm the son of a coach. So um, I grew up in a boxing club in North Manchester. Um, so my dad ran a boxing club there uh, in what's often categorised as Europe's third poorest district. Now, I mentioned that to give you an idea of the sort of social context that we grew up in, but uh, the club was right at the heart of it. And uh, what it was about was, although the sport that was coached uh, was boxing, the reality was it was um, 
it was a bit of a safe haven for a number of kids um, to get them off the street, give them somewhere to go. In the process of doing that, um, there was a number of lads that went from the local community that ended up boxing for England at the Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games. There was a number of them then went on to become professionals and winning British, European, Commonwealth and world titles in the process of it. So what always intrigued me, even from a really young age, was that despite some of the difficulties of the environment that were happening on the street outside of there, this gym almost was a brilliant example of how powerful culture can be. So I'll give you a really simple example. When kids came in there, although they could F and blind with the best of them outside on the street, when they crossed that threshold to come in the boxing club, swearing was prohibited and it wasn't because anyone was being sort of puritanical about it but the idea was that it within that culture discipline was key discipline both in the ring and outside of the ring so we used to say to them if you can't think of something better to say than the f word in a certain situation that indicates a lack of discipline over your ability to control your own language and a lack of discipline there will impact you in the ring when you need to maintain a certain plan or something like that. So culture was always something that I intuitively knew was really powerful. Um, And then as I got a bit older and went down uh, the academic route, um, the area that seemed to speak to me most in that regard was organisational psychology and change, which is about how how do you harness culture to your advantage? And I've been really lucky that um, over the years, I've got to go and meet a variety of coaches that I'm sure we'll talk about in this podcast and and understand how they do it. But equally, I've got the opportunity to go and work with coaches and help them implement it as well. So uh, I feel enormously privileged. That's that's, that's brilliant. One one of my questions, and again, I'm sure we'll dig deep into it today, is that story you told there, rather than the, the facilities or the disposable things at, at, the, at the sort of a coach can have or, or the environment physically, maybe that you're saying that might is not as important in your opinion as the, the non-tangible things like how the, 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 the environment that's created, like you said, the culture, the, the things that you can't buy or, or just drop into a gym, but is yeah. that your experiences around what yeah, makes those... I mean, the boxing gym, we lived hand-to-mouth for a long time when we were doing it. Um, So part of the reason I set up my consultancy was that I could help to fund the boxing club because we were entirely entirely reliant on on people's generosity. So um, we didn't have the best of facilities. It was a proper spit and sawdust um, environment, but yet we still punch well above our weight if you'll forgive the uh, if you'll forgive the pun <laughs> in terms of in terms of what we're doing and, and when yeah, you step yeah. back and look at it it was about the quality of coaching but beyond that it was about the strength of relationships about people coming into an environment where they feel trusted where they felt safe where they didn't feel that anyone was going to take a liberty with them or, or or take advantage of them so all of those factors uh, very much around the interpersonal, the intangible stuff that it's easy to. Dis- I, I hear so many organisations or coaches dismiss this stuff as a soft stuff. Yet my experience tells me that it's a soft stuff that de- delivers the hard results, but mm. but it needs to be in that order. Yeah, one of the questions that I had written down, you, you touched around the word tw- trust. In the previous episode, we, we spoke to Stuart English, at, head of coaching at Birmingham. I'm not sure oh, if yeah. you know Stuart. Yeah, yeah, but, he's um, phenomenal. Stuart, Stuart was talking around um, relationships and the importance of, of trust. So one of, the, one of the things I was going to ask you around, not so much, we'll come on to some of the top players you might have, have seen yeah. in your work, but how, how do the coaches that you've seen across the years, it could be in any sport, how do they go about developing relationships and specifically the trust with the athlete, the players? Is there any common things between them or do they operate in different ways? Yeah, I think that's a really, it, it, it's a really very powerful question, Lee. I think, um, 
I think there's two common factors that I see how coaches establish a culture of trust. There's two things that everybody wants in any relationship. You want transparency and then you want consistency. So first of all, just tell me, tell me what you expect. Tell me the standards and be really clear about what those standards are. Communicate them right from the start. And then that way, people know what they're signing up to. The second thing is then apply those standards rigorously. So once you've told me what you expect of me, then make sure that that's that's how everybody is expected to conduct themselves. Now, the standards of behaviour will differ from culture to culture. And this is where one thing I'd, I'd encourage anyone listening to this is don't get caught up in copying what other cultures do because that's a gimmick. So one of my pet hates is I... I uh, when I speak to coaches, they'll say to me, I'll give you a really simple example. People go, oh, yeah, we're, we sweep the sheds in our club. And you go, why is that? And they go, because I read that the All Blacks sweep the shed, sweep their dressing room afterwards. And I go, yeah, yeah, I, I know that. And I know why the All Blacks do it. I'm interested. Why do you do it? And if the only rationale you can offer me is because you've read that the All Blacks do it, you've fallen into the trap of adopting a gimmick. What that I'd encourage anyone to do is go back before that and say, what is the behavior that you're demanding from people within your culture? And if it is, for example, humility, and one of the one of the attributes of humility is you leave somewhere in the fit state after you've left it, I get that you would get people sweeping the dressing rooms afterwards, but don't do don't do the action without explaining the rationale behind it. And that's where the transparency comes from. You have to explain to people, this is what we stand for. And therefore, this is why that behaviour is linked to it. Yeah. No, that's a really, that's a valid point. You do see on uh, on social media every Saturday evening, someone's put a picture of a clean dressing room up, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I'm not advocating not to clean the dressing room but I'm but what I'm advocating is explain the rationale behind yeah, yeah. if that's what you're going to do but then that has to be aligned all the way through the organization that yeah. if humility for example is the behavior how else are you demonstrating it what other methods do you use to communicate that um so to answer your question I think once once people know what's expected of them and then see it being applied through those two principles, that is where trust starts to develop because you start to then establish that I know I know the rules of this game that we're playing and people then start to relax a little bit, feel safe and trusted within that environment. Mm. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I love that, mate. One, one, moving on from just the trust, I mean, this might crop up again in, in this question, but yeah. like, like you've touched upon, you've had the privilege of watching many coaches at, at the highest level are yeah. there any common traits that you've seen between those coaches um wh- yeah. either specific to football or or broader but are there any common traits between the ones you've had the privilege of, of observing yes very much so what I do, I do, and again I do, I, I'll, I'll offer an answer to this but do it on the caveat that i'm not suggesting that there are any formulas for any coaches listening to apply because be careful of anyone that tries to give you a formula or say there is a silver bullet, do this one thing and you will get amazing results. Um, Be careful of anyone and just be sceptical because I've yet to see that and speaking to a wide variety of people, they, they don't see it either. What I would say is that I, I, I have seen in my travels across a wide variety of sports with coaches, not just football, is that there are five um, there are five factors that these coaches tend to consistently deliver, uh, regardless of their sport. There are five things that they do, and the the five things I, to help people remember them, I, I give a simple acronym called STEPS, and it almost I encourage anyone to say if you are not getting the results that you won, whether it's with somebody you're coaching or your team or the environment, use this almost like a bit of a shopping list and go through the steps and go, where do I need to focus on a little bit more? So in turn, to explain the acronym, the first uh, part of the steps is they keep things really simple. They don't overcomplicate things. So they they deliver messages in really succinct ways. This goes back to the behaviour stuff. They don't give 
long list of instructions. They give three simple behaviours that people might expect within their cult. Um, there's lots of examples of, I remember interviewing Alex Ferguson many years ago where he explained that, um, that he, he said he thought the maximum number of words that a coach should use in a half-time team talk was 10, if he could get away with it. But he, that requires a lot of practice. I remember many, so when I was a kid, uh, Jimmy Murphy, who was Matt Busby's assistant, used to come in the boxing club because he lived quite close to us. And I remember my dad used to encourage me, he said, go and speak to Jimmy, he'll tell you some of the great stories about Busby and the Busby babes and that's like the best law and Charlton here and things like that. And I remember he was telling me once about coaching. He said, I'll show you what great coaches do. And he threw me a ball. He said, catch it. I caught it. He said, how did you find that? He said, it was easy. He said, give it me back. And then he threw two balls at me. He said, catch them both. I managed to catch him. He said, how did you find that? I said, it was all right. It was a bit harder. So he threw three. Then he threw four. And on the last occasion, he threw five balls. And the reality was I did well to catch one. And Murphy said to me at the time, he said, that's the difference between good and great coaches. He said, because what good coaches do is they throw five balls in the hope that some of them will be relevant. What great coaches do is they throw one ball because they, they spend time up front working out, not how many balls can I throw, but how many can you catch? And by asking that question, you then force yourself to say, what's the most important message? So it's almost this idea of you give people information in the easily digestible format so simplicity is one factor i've seen these great coaches do the second part of our acronym is t the thinking bit they create an environment for people to think and this comes back to our earlier question lee about trust what i saw and this was almost the quietest skill when i've observed coaches if you're not looking for it you'll miss it they didn't upset they don't obsess about having in the right answer they don't obsess about standing in front of the room and being right what i saw the best coaches do is they obsess about creating an environment where people can ask questions because when people are asking questions that indicates that they're thinking and if they're thinking there's plenty of evidence that says the information's going in so much deeper that they'll retain the information and do something tangible with it so I often say this to coaches, if you want a barometer of how much thinking is taking place in your sessions, there's two things you need to look out for. First thing is, have a look at how many people are asking you questions. Have a look at the level of, and then the second thing is, look at the engagement of how they respond to those questions. Because when somebody puts their hand up in a session or comes and asks you a question, there are two things psychologically happening within that culture. The first thing is they have to feel safe to do that and know that you're not going to hammer them or make the, make a fool of them or, or expose their lack of knowledge. And the second thing they're doing is they're giving you as a coach the opportunity to build trust. So thinking becomes critical within our cultures and, and it's imperative that we make time and space to do that. I'll give you a simple example. I remember doing some work in rugby league a few years ago and I uh, I did a session with the first team squad of a team and one of the, I asked the question and deliberately left the silence. So it was uncomfortable. And in the end, one of the young players, he was only sort of like a first year professional tried to answer the question. And what happened behind him was two of the senior guys started laughing at him because he got the answer horribly wrong. And that was the moment where I stopped the session and said to the two senior guys, what are you doing? And they went, oh, we're just having a laugh. And I said, so I asked the young first year, I said, do you find what they're doing to you funny? Or is it hurtful? And the guy went, no, no, I, I don't appreciate them doing it. I've tried to answer the question. So the point I was making to the senior guys is you don't think that really matters. But what you've done is you've just eroded trust in him as a team. So at some stage, you might need to rely on it. And you've sowed the seed in his mind that he can't trust you. Because when he gets it wrong, you hammer him, you make fun of him. So even in simple activities like that, you can erode trust by not allowing people the opportunity to think, but equally be psychologically safe if they get if their thinking isn't quite aligned. The E part of it, Lee, is the emotional intelligence. I've yet to meet a elite coach that isn't emotionally intelligent. And emotional intelligence is almost just this ability to make people feel safe, 
to make people feel valued, to give people that sense of control and ownership of their own destiny. So again, I'll, I'll draw on, um, it's been in the news recently because of uh, the Tyson Fury fight, but um, many years ago, I went to uh, Detroit, the, to the Kronk Boxing Gym in Detroit, where Tyson Fury's decamped to. But it was run for many years by a guy called Manny Stewart. But when I went to meet Manny, um, I mean, to get to where the Kronk Gym is, it's quite an intimate intimidating journey that you need to take and I was feeling quite out of my depth when I went to visit and when I first met Manny his first words to me was he said Damien he said how do you feel coming into the Kronk gym so I thought it was being polite so I gave him a polite response and said oh it's great to be here I'm excited what he did next was interesting he went he said thanks for being he said thanks for your kind words he said now do you mind telling me the truth how do you really feel <laughs> and I found myself having verbal diarrhea and stood in front of this guy I've admired saying to him, to be honest, I feel a bit out of my depth. I don't want to waste your time. I know you're busy. I'm sorry to impose on you like this. And it was what he did next. It was brilliant. He said, thanks for being honest. He said, that means we can work together. And when I got to know him a bit better, I said to him, that first morning we met, you asked me the second question. Why did you ask it? And Manny Stewart looked surprised. He went, I I always ask the second question. He said, the second question is when we actually start working together. That's when the coaching starts. So what do you mean? He said, well, he said, when you turned up in my gym, he said, you looked a little bit frightened and nervous. So the question I asked you, the answer you gave me didn't match up with what I could see with my own eyes. So he said, so that led me to one or two conclusions. He said, you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. So he said, so my second question says, let's find out who we really are. How do you feel? He said, and the second answer that you gave me told me you were telling lies, but you were telling lies to try and mask your own nerves, which told me that you were probably a decent bloke. He said, but that second question is what I ask every, but every child that comes into my world. He said, because every child that comes in here feels nervous, frightened, scared, maybe a little bit intimidated. They don't want to look stupid. He said, and I work on the basis that I need to contain before I can explain now, those three words to me sum up emotional intelligence contain says, I need to feel, I need to be interested in you as a person. I need to know something about your story. I need to make you feel secure and safe. And when I can convince you of all those aspects, then, then I can start to explain how I'm going to coach you. But that's the soft skill that, that you see it on so many coaches. I worked for many years with a great coach called Tony Smith, a rugby league coach. He was a guy that used to insist on every morning he'd come down to the dressing room and shake hands with every member of his staff uh, and his playing staff in that. He got someone to make a note of all the dates of um, his players' partners' birthdays or children's birthdays. And he'd just go and have a quiet word and say, oh, could you wish Jane a happy birthday today from me? And it was all, it didn't cost him anything. But it was all about just establishing this idea of I care about you as a person, not as a player. The player bit is secondary to the person that's doing the job. That's emotional intelligence in a nutshell. The P, P part of our acronym, to go back to that, is practicality. So what I noticed is these coaches weren't using bullshit or jargon or technical phrases when they could explain it in a different way. So I remember speaking to one coach who said to me, he said, I've got a room of novices and experts so it's, it's far better to speak at the language of the novice than it is at the expert, because the experts will understand it. But I, risk, I misc isolating a novice if I'm using phrases like this. So again, it's one of my bugbears. I go and see coaches that speak in all, these sort, all the jargon and the lingo and things like that. And it makes me cringe because I think speaking your language, not in the language of the, of the textbook or the course tutor that you've just been on, translate it into your world so language becomes practical and accessible and then the final part of our acronym Lee, that i've seen these coaches demonstrate is the brilliant storytellers now storytelling i know is in vogue at the moment but storytelling is coaching because it taps into a concept in psychology called the Kolmogorov complexity now, it's named after a Russian psychologist, but the idea is when I tell you a story, I can get over quite complex information in a way that most people can receive it. So you can, rather than give people a PowerPoint chart of, of say, for example, how you want a player in a certain position to do it, 
rather than just rely on that information transferring across. Tell them a story. If you're working with a fullback, tell them a story about Paolo Maldini and how he used to track his marker or something like that. Tell them stories about athletes you've worked with that have adopted these lessons. And, and this was one of these things that it doesn't look like a coaching skill because sometimes this coaching can take place in the canteen or it can take in place on the bus journeys, but it's still coaching. So it's these five steps that I've seen uh, are consistently applied amongst the league coaches. And what I hope for anyone listening to this is they go, well, I could do that as well. So they're not things dependent on resources or talent or the level you're coaching at. These are things all coaches can use at any level that we're operating with. Ah, oh, fantastic! I um, <clears throat> I scribbled down all sorts of questions here, so we might we might jump around. So, yeah, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> forgive me on that one. Um, the, the the one the one thing, or the, one of the many things, but something that struck home with me there is around the simplicity. And I was um, I was listening to your audio book recently, where you you talk through the five steps. Um, yeah. And right in, in in near the beginning of it, it I think it was a you said something, whether it was your father or whether it was a coach in the boxing gym, but you said something around uh, during one of the intervals between rounds. Yeah, he gave right. such a succinct... And that's something that over the years, I, I talk too much, I repeat myself, and I've been trying really hard to get a message across as succinctly as possible. Would you Would you mind sharing that little story? And is there yeah, any yeah. tips or so, ways that, that coaches can maybe... Is that just, does it come with practice or or do you think there was planning and thought, really detailed thought into that or is it, it just one of those things that over time happens? Right, okay. So the, so the story you recount was um, one of the jobs I used to do was I used to go and carry the spit bucket in the corner. So during the fights, I just used to be part of the corner team and I'd sometimes just my job was simply just to put the spit bucket in, in between rounds. But... Um, I was there supporting the corner rather than the fighter themselves. So um, the fight I was describing was um, my dad had trained a, um, a super middleweight fighter called Robin Reed, and he was due to fight for the WBC uh, super middleweight title um, out in Italy, and he was fighting the Italian champion. So we were out in San Remo. And what I knew was the fight... I knew the game plan, so the game plan was for Reed to basically control the sense of the ring and just be disciplined, just keep throwing his right hand relentlessly at the champion, this Nardiello. And the idea was just rack up the points, don't do anything silly, but just keep disciplined and, and beat it. So in about the, in between the corner, between the, um, the sixth and seventh round, I was thinking just before the bell went, I was thinking... The fight was going brilliantly. It was going to plan. And I remember thinking, what's my dad going to say when he goes in there? He's got a minute to deliver the message. And I was thinking, what information is he going to pass on? And in my head, I was thinking, there's three things you could really say from a coaching point of view. One thing is you could go, keep doing what you're doing. The second thing you could do is say, oh, keep your discipline. Don't lose your shape and tell them what you don't want them to do. Or there was the third thing that he did. So he got in the ring and he delivered his message in um, five words, he said, sit down when you punch. And then I remember Reed looking at him and he nodded and he said it again. He said, remember, just sit down when you punch. And then Reed nodded. He went out and he knocked the opponent out in the next round. Now, I should have just explained that for anyone that doesn't know what that means. So it's, it's a phrase that they use in boxing that says, when you sit down, when you punch, that means plant both your feet. So imagine you're sitting on the chair. You put both feet on the floor to carry your weight. So what that meant was, when you sit down, when you punch, don't jab and then look to move. Because the idea was he, he would present a moving target. And what sit down, when you punch meant was, stop moving and start landing your punches with greater power. So we went out and knocked the opponent out in the next round by doing precisely that. Now, when I got to ask him afterwards, I said, why did you come up with that? Because to me, that took real balls to go and just deliver a message. You've got a minute to do it and you deliver five words and you just repeat those five words and that's it. And what he'd said he'd noticed was that during the fight, he'd noticed that this Nardiello had a, had a tendency to keep his right hand high. 
and he'd noticed in the fifth round that his hand started to be dropping a little bit. So in the sixth round, he noticed that he was really having a battle to keep his high, his hand high, which told him that he was starting to get tired, fatigue was setting in. So he knew that that was the moment to switch the game plan from moving to staying still. So that's the story I recount because that to me was the art of great coaching to have the confidence to deliver quite a complex message in just five words and yeah. not to do anything else. So the question is, can we develop it? The answer to that is yes, but that's not necessarily something that just comes with experience. We need to almost be very deliberate in the way that we go about trying to develop it. So there's a technique that they use in Hollywood that's worth anyone, any coaches thinking, how do I do this? The technique they use in Hollywood is called the bottom line up front. They call it the bluff technique. And the bottom line up front says, tell people what your film's about in one sentence and then just shut up. So the example I use in the book you describe is, um, I remember reading an interview with Steven Spielberg where it was one of his life ambitions to make a Bond film and he went to try and make Octopus and he got rejected. And it was when he was talking to George Lucas, they came up with the idea of James Bond with a hat and a whip, which was the genesis of the whole Indiana Jones trilogy. Now, they said they didn't have any more detail than we're going to remake James Bond, but we'll give him a hat and a whip instead. And they pitched that, just that one simple idea that most people go, oh, I get what you mean by that. So what I often encourage coaches to do is, how would you explain this if you only had 10 words to deliver your message? And start thinking about scenarios, not in the moment, but maybe when you're reflecting on your best practice, how could I have delivered that in succinct terms? And eventually, experience then gives you a database of examples where you'll do it time and again. So if you remember the famous Alex Ferguson example that Roy Keane recounts when he walks into the dressing room once and said to them, lads, it's Spurs. And then just walks out of the room. And Roy Keane tells the story that he said, everyone knew what he meant. They're a good, attractive football team, but if you just physically stay with them and dominate them, eventually they'll fall away. Now, Keane recounts that as an example of brilliant coaching. He said he didn't need to say more than, lads, it's Spurs. And do that. So it takes confidence to do it. And sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. But if we deliberately try and think about how do we deliver our message? Think about how newspaper articles work. If you read the newspaper article about the, about a football match last night, you wouldn't want to read, wait till the last sentence to find out who won the match. They tell you who won it right at the start. Then they give you all the rest of the information further down. So it's almost about what's the one message you would want people to walk away from your coaching session knowing, doing, or understanding differently. And then the detail follows that, but you have to be clear about what that one message is. No, oh, fantastic. I, I love that. That's, uh, that's, I took a lot from that, that 15 minutes just listening. So one, one thing I want to then ask is because yeah. I go into every session or game with, with when I'm coaching with all these good intentions, but, but sometimes pressure or the moment gets to me. Um, how obviously my, my pressurized moments they're quite big in my coaching world, but they're probably yeah. not to not to compare to Sir Alex's. Um, but how do the how do the top coaches deal with pressure, or what have you seen them? Uh, because I guess that's what makes the best the best, isn't it? Staying on track or, or being able to yeah, adapt yeah. and think clearly under pressure. But how how do they deal with that, or or what have you seen them them do when yeah, when yeah. they face big moments? Um, I'll tell you a really interesting technique. So when we were speaking off air about this, um, one technique that I, I, I came up with with a, a coaching friend of mine was that he prepares his press conference before the game. So before he goes to speak to the press after a game, he knows what he's going to say. And he's prepared it on the morning of the game. And that came from a couple of times when he was under pressure, he'd blurt things out or he'd come in and say like there'd been a bad refereeing decision. He'd made the mistake a few times of coming in and blaming the referee. And what he was finding was when you do the review on Monday morning, it's very difficult to get the players to take responsibility then because you've already given yeah. them the excuse it was a referee. So we came up with the idea of saying before, you, before the game, you know that there's only going to be three outcomes. You're going to win, lose or draw. So prepare what you're going to say 
before the game even takes place. So that way, you've set yourself up for the next week. So when you bring them into training, there's a consistent message that they've heard after the game that you then got to implement in the in your coaching sessions the week after. So that's one example of a pressurised situation where just investing a bit of time and forethought can often stop you acting out of character. Yeah. Another way I've seen it done is, uh, is get, so this is the way I sometimes describe my role is um, I remember reading years ago in, in Roman uh, emperor's times, uh, the more for, for uh, more sort of far-sighted emperors used to have a guy that adopted a role called the Memento Mori. And the Memento Mori says they used to have a guy that used to stand on their shoulder. And when they came back to Rome after the sort of winning battles overseas and the whole of um, the city was out to celebrate, this Memento Mori guy would stand on the shoulder of the Roman emperor and say to him, remember that you're going to die one day. Remember that you're human. Remember you're fallible. And the idea behind it was to stop them getting carried away with their own self-importance. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. the idea of you're not, you know, you're good, but you're not as good as maybe you sometimes can be led to believe you are. And I think that again, I'd encourage coaches get people around you that are prepared to cut through the bullshit and challenge you, that know who you want to be and are prepared to give you the feedback to say you didn't do that as well as you could do on that occasion. But you need somebody that you know has got your best interests at heart, somebody that trusts you rather than somebody just being um, a yes man in many ways. Because I've seen coaches let down by this. I remember talking to a coach years ago who uh, I said to him, you can surround yourself with truth tellers or time tellers. And and the idea would come from, um, I was in a coaching box with one coach who was under massive pressure. And he, his focus had become uh, too, uh, too narrow. And he turned to his assistant coaches and he said, uh, what do you think we do next? And both of his assistant coaches went, there's about 20 minutes left. And I remember talking to the coach afterwards and went, I could have told you how much time was left on the clock. <laughs> what you needed at that moment in time was somebody to challenge your thinking, somebody just to throw an idea in to break you out of that narrow focus that you got into. And instead, what, what had happened was the two guys there just gave you the time. So it didn't help you break that pattern or alleviate the pressure. So again, I'd encourage coaches, you can't do this in the moment of being under pressure. You need to plan and prepare for when we're under pressure, how do we handle this? And they need to feel trusted enough to throw in ideas and be rejected without feeling that they're being rejected. So I'd encourage you, just talking about it and having a look at moments where we haven't performed as well as we can. Why was that? What happened? How would you break that cycle again? Can just be a really valuable exercise for any coach that 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 wants to improve. Yeah. Would you would you suggest assigning roles, whether it's a lead coach and an assistant coach, like you said before the game, around these are the things we're gonna that I want to talk about and your role is to hold me accountable to that perhaps or if the information I'm sending on the pitch is different to this your yes. role is yeah 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 I think that's incredibly can... valuable so if you know what the message is and you feel that that's been diluted or uh is being confused definitely just to have somebody that can and what I'd, I mean again you need somebody that that you have levels of trust between you so that you know that they're not going to um, contradict you or undermine you. So, I, I, again, this is a role that I sometimes get assigned by coaches I've been lucky enough to work with. My job is just to be their eyes and ears in the dressing room. So I'm not there to deliver any messages, but my job is to just observe the dressing room and see, is that message going in? Is that understanding there? And then maybe sometimes to flag up with a coach and say, I don't think he heard what you said. You need to go back and have a bit of a one-on-one with them. So, again, having somebody there that has got you back in terms mm-hmm. of communication, whether that's they can challenge you and say you need to be clearer on this or, you know, you diluted that message there, go back and emphasise it, is really valuable. Yeah. No, fantastic. Speaking of pressure, yeah. um, maybe maybe more so on the playing side of things, but what are your thoughts? Do, do you think 
speaking maybe specifically around football, do you think there's a we have a problem or a difficulty at dealing with pressure in this in this country, whether that's big games, knockout tournaments, penalty shootouts, etc. Um, and I guess twofold to that. Do you think maybe then and I'm not not to say it is or it isn't, but the non-competitiveness that we're seeing now at school sports and and youth elites football, do you think that might be helping or hindering players and coaches' ability to ha- to work under pressure or, or cope under pressure? Right. Okay. Again, really good question, Lee. I'd say um, it's subjective. So, so we all respond differently under pressure. Uh, so, I'll, I'd, I'd be careful of making any generic observations about us as a nation. I think sure. some of us respond really well. Some don't. Um, I think what's common is that people that invest time in understanding what pressure does to us and how we respond accordingly are the ones that give themselves a fighting chance of dealing with it better. So again, that comes back to when we spoke about those steps, the emotional intelligence piece. Mm. Um, When you invest in time and understanding that, that's where I think we can all improve better in the way that we uh, interpret and respond to stress situations. Like, I don't think it's any coincidence that you look at teams that tend to sustain high levels of success. They do make significant amount of time to work on on this aspect of it. I think what what I see when I go into some clubs is that they regard this almost like a, as a tick box. So they go, oh yeah, we're, we've dealt with some of the, you know, we've brought a psychologist in, uh, but the way that they, they use that psychologist or the way that it's perceived amongst the playing group as a sign of weakness to go and utilize them. I think that's a sign of a culture where they maybe there's a preponderance not to respond so well to stress in that regard. Um, so I'd say it depends on the openness to wanting to. I think we can all improve in the ability to respond to stress, and there's plenty of tools and resources out there. It's whether there's an openness and a willingness to use them that uh, that that will always uh, make a difference. The yeah. stuff around school sport. Um, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because this is a debate that's been going around for a long time. Um, I mean, I, I, my children, uh, my son especially, um, is um, he's 10 years old. So I, going along as a parent to watch him uh, join in with sports has been really fascinating to observe it. Um, I've got... I suppose my take on it is that I don't, I don't see a lack of competitiveness... Um, that goes on there. So I, I don't see that being discouraged so much. I think it's when uh, coaches are overly focused on outcome rather than process is what yeah. really upsets me. So when you see it's about winning the game rather than actually have we got better, have we improved? And I think we can be a lot. I, I think we can be a lot more rigorous on coaching the process rather than just the outcome. Yeah, because. Like I'll give you an example. Um, when my son was, uh, I think he was five or six, he I took him to a football class, and the coach was well intentioned. So this isn't a criticism of him, but he basically got groups of six-year-old boys lined up, and he gave them a number each: one, two, three, four. Gave another group facing them the same number, and threw a ball in the middle and shouted a number, and the two kids had to run out and try and tackle each other. Now. I don't know about you, but that would intimidate me as an adult. Yeah. So as a six-year-old child being thrown into that sort of gladiatorial environment, my son came away and just went, I didn't like it, Dad. Because I think there was the focus on the outcome rather than the process of let's teach you how to tackle or let's teach you how to how to avoid a man, how to throw a dummy or whatever. There, were, there wasn't so much the focus on the skill. It was more on the outcome of beat your opponent. And I think competitiveness is something we all have inherent to us. I don't think we need to develop that. I think that's there. But I think we could do more focus on the process of, of improvement because not everybody's going to be a professional sportsman, but we can all get better from whatever the starting position that we, that we come from is. Yeah. The reason why I, reason why I mentioned that, I think it's something I've spoke about to, to coaches in the past, is I completely agree with you on... As a as a coaching 
focus it has to be on the intention not just the outcome or like you said the process the one thing that I specifically in, in elite football that I feel like is this such a it's the, the, the top end is competitive and not everyone is going to make it to the top end but at the younger ages the opportunity for the boys or girls to practice within that kind of environment is very limited so then when they're thrown into it at the latter stage or the older stage of their career it's it's almost like learning a new skill but they're in a time where they're being judged if that makes sense so I, yeah yeah i think maybe having elements of and it's, it is getting better there is parts of the game the, the games program which is competitive or tournament football etc the key like you said is that us as coaches don't place all the emphasis on the outcome but as a as a tool the game itself when it is knockout whatever the, the, the players have to make slightly different decisions or operate slightly yes. differently in that environment so I don't think we'd be doing them a, a service well enough if the first time they experience it is their debut in the first team I think they should have some, yeah, yeah. something in their locker to fall back on and like you said it's not our job to say if you win well done if you lose bad day at the office we have to do the, the building blocks behind that but I just worry, it concerns me if there's enough opportunity for players to get it right and get it wrong at the younger ages in their environments yeah yeah. I've, I'm, I've, I think we're coming at this from exactly the same angle then Lee that, sure. that, that I agree with you I think I think there has to be an element of competition to it and that should be introduced early on so you understand there's consequences and things like that but I I I, I think too often the conversation is binary. We either it, it's either or. So we yeah, either compete yeah. or we don't. And you go, no, no, it can be both and. You can have yeah. competition and it can be about developing skills and improvement. Sure. So I, I, I think you can combine the best coaches like yourself combine those elements. No, that's uh, yeah. Maybe I, I need to work on my questioning techniques. I didn't quite. I <laughs> didn't quite explain that one well enough but no no um, no you did I, I, I got your point it was a good question yeah. I'm, uh, I'm really conscious of time I've got one more question to ask you um, you, you mentioned around obviously you spent some time with Sir Alex Ferguson and arguably one of if not the greatest managers of all time in football but what fascinates me about him is how he was so successful for such a long period of time with so many different players and different teams it, uh, what I'd be interested again, you, maybe you only saw a small time frame of that for him. But how how did he keep reinventing himself, or or did he need to? And one thing that you look at some of the players that that wore the Man United shirt over the years, yeah, challenging could be challenging characters could be could <laughs> be one way to describe some of them. So do you have how did the did he or do elite coaches deal with conflict or challenge? Have you spotted anything over your experiences yeah, right, around, okay. around that? Yeah. Now, just to clarify, in terms of, I, I didn't work with Ferguson, so I'd, I've been fortunate enough to meet him and and sort of ask him some of these questions. But a lot of the value has been from players that played under him and sharing. They've okay. been very generous with sharing it. Um, I think one of the things that Ferguson did did say, and has been on record as saying, is that I think one of the ways that he responded to change was, he said success gave him the cushion of being able to plan in four-year cycles. So because he because he knew that his job was relatively secure, he could sort of view things through a four-year lens rather than just go from year to year or game to game. So what he meant by that was he was able to almost look at somebody and go, we've got a young player coming through here that if I blood him now, I, he will replace somebody. So some of his decision-making about, say, Van Nistelrooy or Beckham or Yap Stam, he would argue that some of that, the rationale behind it was because he was viewing things on where will they be in four years' time rather than just delivering for today. So he had a bit of a longer-term perspective. Sure. I think another thing he did, though, was, and I think this often gets underrated from him, was that if you look at say the next nearest equivalent uh, Ferguson is Arsene Wenger. This just illustrates the difference. In his first 26, in his 26 years at United, Ferguson had seven different assistant coaches. Wenger had just Pat Rice. And then in the last couple of years, he brought Steve Bolden. 
And I think the reason that is an interesting difference is that Ferguson was bringing in people that could plug the gaps in his knowledge. So when he first came down and needed a disciplinarian, Archie Knox was his right-hand man. Then when they started to develop young players coming through, he appointed Brian Kidd to that role that had, that had been the mentor of those kids at the youth level. Then when they needed technical expertise for European competition, he brought in the likes of Carlos Quieras. Um, so I think he was constantly bringing in people to challenge his own knowledge base, which I think takes real courage mm. but self-confidence enough to admit that that's not your strength, but you have somebody that can come in and plug the gap for that. So I think that's a real underrated virtue of that you probably describe it as open-mindedness or humility from a coach to be prepared to say, I don't know this, but I'm prepared to listen and learn. Whereas, again, if you want to contrast that, how how many coaches do you ever know that, or how many stories do you ever hear of um, coaches that because they were a good player just that automatically assume that they're going to be good coaches or or coaches that that they want to know well have you played the sport or how many caps did you win and if you don't have a certain level of status they don't want to hear from you that's the opposite of what Ferguson was doing with his with his open-mindedness and his humility oh, brilliant it's, uh, I guess it goes back to to what you said earlier didn't you around um, setting the setting the the culture of of trust transparency and consistency and then finding the tools that go with that whether that yes. be if i can't do this as well as someone else being humble enough to bring someone in who can yes yeah and not seeing that as a as a slight upon your ability but seeing that as as a willingness to open yourself up to new ideas how can a player then um then criticise you for, for for doing that if you think that what you're doing is getting someone in that can plug a gap to help them. And then, equally, it gives you the credibility to go and challenge players to be more open-minded when it comes to looking for new ideas or ways to improve. Yeah. No, no matter no matter what, what interview you see or what player you hear, if they're talking about their time at, at Man United, if they played under him, they always talk around what an incredible person he was and how genuine he was which like you said that you touched on that earlier around just outside of co well it is coaching isn't it just getting to know people and have people's best interests at heart builds that trust and that relationship which I guess allowed him to be as successful as he was yeah I mean I'll give you an interesting example um I was uh, lucky enough to spend an afternoon recently uh, uh, uh chatting with Rio Ferdinand um, and we were talking about the culture at Manchester United and things like that. And at no stage did he speak about Alex Ferguson, the coach, but he spoke about him, about as a man and just the decency and the humility and how he cared for him. And he, the example we're talking about was, uh, I was asking him about that drug ban when he got done for that. And, and, and he spoke about how that was the time when Ferguson really came to the fore. He said he trusted me. I hadn't done anything wrong, but I'd made a mistake. But he looked after me as a person, not as a footballer. He cared about me and my welfare and my, the welfare of my family, which, again, it's just a little anecdote and an aside. But I think the best coaches, when people speak about them, they speak about them as people, not necessarily just as as uh, as coaches. Yeah, I heard... Um listened to an interview with Luke Chadwick recently and he said about Sir Alex was the best person, the nicest man he's ever met and would do absolutely anything just to try and please him. Again, entirely consistent. So you think of somebody like Luke Chadwick that you talk about there, Rio Ferdinand. These are players across generations, but equally that had different levels of success, but there's still a consistency in the message. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I'm conscious, like, last couple then, Dave, because I know you, you, you've got lots no, to do. Right, so, right. Um, just um, what what's next for you then? What what are you working on or what are your areas you want to focus on for the near future? Is there anything that really excites you and you want to dig deeper into? Or Yeah, I'm really quite... I'm, I'm interested in uh, trying to demystify this idea of high performance because it's a question that people often talk about. 
whether it's about high-performing cultures or how you can help people do that. So um, that Rio Ferdinand example I just gave you, uh, I've been lucky enough to be spending some time um, doing interviews with people from a wide range of backgrounds and organisations to try and demystify it and understand it and break it down so I can pass it on to coaches and practitioners to help them understand it. So uh, it's quite an interesting project that's taking up a lot of time at the moment. Oh, fancy! You'll have to you'll have to share that with us and yeah, definitely have yeah, a chat to... in the future when that comes yeah, to fruition. To. Brilliant! What um, again? Uh, I, I hopefully are not dropping this one on you, but oh. who who would you recommend that we try and get on the show in the future? Who who would be uh, good to pick the brains of, or is there anyone that you enjoy listening to that maybe some of our listeners would also? Yeah, I tell you, I, I, um, this. Um, this example I was just telling you about high performance, I I, I did um, an interview on uh, Friday with Robin Van Persie. And uh, Van Persie was sharing some... Uh, so he's not coaching at the moment, but he's got a 14-year-old son who's, in, who's at Fire Nords Academy. And he was sharing some really interesting examples of both from his perspective as a, as a father, but equally from his perspective as an as a elite footballer some of the messages that he was passing on to his son that again if you could get him on he was really fascinated about some of those insights oh, I'm, a, I'm a big Arsenal fan as well so you, you, you might have uh, you might have hit the nail on the head there <laughs> <laughs> um, okay fantastic Here, here's a couple then that we asked everyone and I, I did send these through so again cool. hopefully I'm not catching you off uh, off guard these are what we try and call our quick fire questions but some yeah. of the guys take way too long to answer so in, in, your, <laughs> in your in your opinion um, and I know you've seen a lot but who would be the best uh, Premier League manager that, that that's ever graced the league oh, um, Premier League or, or beyond Premier or before Premier well, League I, you, you, can, you can you can do both if there's a justifiable reason I guess I know you well, spoke very highly of Sir Alex today so I'm sure we'd be up there yeah. Yeah, so I'd, I'd put him up there in terms of the current era, but Matt Busby, so Matt Busby before them, because I, I, I referenced that Jimmy Murphy, Busby's assistant, um, I'd, I'd met him a number of times before he passed away in the late 80s. Uh, but Busby, in terms of what he built at Manchester United, but more importantly, just just the humility, the decency, uh, the courage of him, you know, when you think about what he built pre-Munich and then to go and do it again after the trauma of that. I just think he's a phenomenal character. Yeah. Yeah, human being rather than just the manager, isn't it? They're the traits you talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love Busby. Brilliant. What about um, player? Who would you say is maybe might have been your favourite or someone you've admired oh. best ever? Uh, yeah, this was an easy one. Cantona. So, okay. uh, yeah, I think everything that happened... I mean, I'm a Manchester lad, I'm a United fan, and I think everything that uh, we experienced through the through the 90s and beyond can be traced back to his arrival. So I just think he was a catalyst. I think I remember hearing um, Ferguson tell a story once about Gary Neville and he was practising out um, at the cliff and he was doing some shuttle runs on his own and players were laughing at him for being... Um, a bit of a creep but I think that culture shifted once Cantona came and just showed them how the value of staying behind and training and getting better and all of that stuff um, just the cultural impact he had and then just the sheer genius of him yeah. made him somebody else there's a lovely story I told once that I heard Roy Keane tell it where um, they had a um, they'd done a video and they got £16,000 worth of royalties and uh, when they divided it up amongst the first team staff, it was about 500 quid each. So they decided to pool the resources and just did they had a draw to see whoever picked it out won 16 grand. And Cantonar ended up winning it. And the next day he came in and gave a cheque to uh, Nicky Butt and Paul Scholes because they put their name in the, in the ring um, to get drawn out. And they were only young kids. But Cantonar rewarded them for having the courage to gamble. And I just oh. think little stories like that tell you that that was a bloke that just understood the culture that he was a part of and was just doing simple ways of um, of maximising that impact. So I just think Cantona's a genius. Yeah, funny you should say that. We were 
I was showing some of the, the, the players at, at work the other day around the goal he scored, you know, the chip, when he scored the chip over. Oh, yeah, uh, against Sunderland. But yeah, and then he yeah. and then he just stands there, hands on <laughs> hips, and looks around the stadium. The the, the, the young boys at twelves couldn't couldn't believe it. But it was just that, but that I was air think, of confidence and yeah, yeah I, ju- I just did that. It was brilliant. I love seeing well, one that. One thing I, I think about that play, because it's iconic, is if the context, and again, if you're sharing this with the young boys, he was having a dreadful run of form at that time. So that was his last season where things just seemed to be slightly off-key for him. And he'd been having a, a run of bad form where he'd had a few bad games, he'd misplaced some passes, even in that Sunderland game. And what I love about that is the courage to still try and execute that chip. Yeah. So it's the context, the fact that it wasn't going right for him, things weren't flowing, and yet he still had the courage to keep trying and keep persevering. That's what made him a genius. Yeah, no, brilliant. Really, that's a great insight. I like that. The fact that he's 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 given money to to the young boys just speaks about his core values there, doesn't he? I suppose. Very much. Yeah, uh, yeah, very much. What about then? In uh, who's been the best the best team Premier League team over the years? Do you think what what he, season or era? Again, I know you're a United fan, so is it yeah, the treble so team? No, I'd say I'd go back. I'd say it was Ferguson's first great team. I'd say it was that team of uh, of uh, the ninety three through to 94 season I think they had everything I think they were um, I think I remember Paul Lynn saying that we could fight you or we could or we could play football with you whatever you wanted to do would match you Um, and I mean some of it is just because it's evocative of the age I was at the time when they were coming through so I'm always conscious that when you give that it's not so much a rational answer it's a it's a more emotional response yeah, well, that's why we fall in love with with teams and with football, isn't it? It's yeah, definitely. Just, yeah. Okay, last one then. What what oh. would be your all time England eleven? Ah, well, um, again, I'd, um, does this have to be an eleven that I've seen, or can it just? No, 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 history? no, no. It can be can be entirely your choice. So you can pick any England. Yeah. Okay. So past so, or present. Yeah. So you'd start with the. I probably, I've got a real um, affection for sort of the past. Do you know, and when I talk about the past, I mean I'm talking about like the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s because I, I always think there's something about those blokes now that you see them as old men that there's just a real quiet dignity about them. Yeah, you know, like I, he's very poorly now, but I've been fortunate enough. Uh, my dad was uh, a schoolmate of Nobby Styles's. Okay, and you know, like I. And it used to take my breath away as a kid that nobody started, there's only two Englishmen that have ever done what he's done, won a European Cup and a World Cup, him and Bobby Charlton. And yet to have met Nobby Styles, there was just a just a humility, just a quiet dignity and, and, and an inherent decency about him that used to blow my socks off. So I've got a real affection for that kind of era and, and having an interest in it. So... You'd probably put someone like Gordon Banks. Again, he passed away last year, but there were some lovely tributes to him just as a bloke that, uh, that, you'd, that you'd want to include somebody like him there. Um, I'd put Duncan Edwards in at centre-half again, one of the Busby babes. Uh, he'd make sure that he was there. He'd put Bobby Moore alongside him. Um, full-backs, uh, probably put... Uh, again, I'm going to show my bias here. Put Gary Neville in, uh, and then Pierce on the other side. Stuart Pierce, I, I, I like him in terms of his qualities. In midfield, uh, you'd have Bobby Charlton in the centre, uh, and then I'm going to be really biased and put Nobby Styles in alongside him as a defensive midfielder. On the wing, uh, oh, this is where it gets really interesting, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, I would put uh, Tom Finney on one wing. Again, I love stories about him and just what, just a really decent bloke he appeared to be. And then on the other wing, who would have put their uh, stick Beckham in? Uh, just for iconic status. <laughs> and then up front, um, who would I have there? Um, put Lineker in. I always like Lineker. Um as a as, as as a player and then alongside him I would put Tommy Taylor so one of the Busby babes that died at Munich Tommy Taylor was a big rampaging centre forward alongside him 
Great. So there's a there's a few debuts in there going back over the shows. I'm I'll be honest, there's a few names that have not <laughs> not cropped up before, but that's uh Well I'm conscious that like I, I haven't seen these other than on <laughs> archives, like especially some of those older ones, but I'm speaking more about just the qualities of them as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Yes, there's always the, the argument of how good would so and so have been in this era and it's uh it's a fascinating conversation to have, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a brilliant one. I love that. I'd be interested in hearing uh, other people's selections on that. Yeah, I'll, um, we'll have to get them drawn up and I'll share them with you. But, yeah, um, do, please. Damien, I've, I've took up too much of your time, but I, I really appreciate it. It's been uh, it's been excellent and we'll definitely have to get you back on in the future because I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of some of the experiences <laughs> and, and stories that you could share. But Oh, well, well, listen, above all, I think what you're doing with the podcast is fantastic. I love, oh, I appreciate I love, that. I love your humility and your willingness to, uh, uh, to, to make the time at your own expense. To, to do this so it's a real honour to come on so if I can ever help you again in the future I'd love to no I do appreciate it. where where can uh, where can where can the listeners find you What where can they follow you and, and dig deeper into your work what do you want to yeah uh, I'd probably say um, go to um, the, there's a website called liquidthinker.com uh, there's a contact page there if anyone wants to get any questions from today or wants to drop us a line uh, feel free just uh, go to that website drop us a line and I'll, it'll get passed on to me I'll pick it up and I'll always be happy to help and respond. Oh, that's very kind of you. Brilliant. Damien, thank you again. Really appreciate your time today. No, pleasure. Thanks, Lee. It's lovely to chat with you. Thanks, and uh, we'll, we'll catch up soon, I'm sure. Look forward to it. Cheers, mate. Cheers. So there it is. Told you it was a good one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I did. Um, really, really appreciate Damien's time. Um, like he mentioned, if you want to follow any more of his work, dig a little deeper because we only scratched the service, uh, surface, head yourself over to his website, liquidthinker.com. Uh, you'll find links to all his books, all his work, his social medias, etc. And he so kindly said, if you have any questions, fire them over to him there. So liquidthinker.com for that. Um, again, remember pitchrmt.com is our sponsor if you're a player or a coach looking to get spotted or seek young talent so go and take a look on that very very good um, website excellent service so get yourself over there Uh, remember please comment share subscribe whatever you need to do to help the podcast grow because um, I hope you'll agree there were some excellent messages in there that, that can help a lot of people so please do that thanks again for your for your support and for listening look forward to the next one see you all guys soon